morning. As Nathan mentioned in his prayer, I'm one of the elders here at Two Rivers. A couple of months ago, Phil asked if one of the elders would preach for him this morning, and I volunteered. And I've regretted that decision most of this week. Um, my prayer has been, though, that God would use even me, a broken vessel, to be able to communicate his truth to you this morning. As some of you know, our daughter Margaret and her husband Ben moved to Charleston a few months ago. They came to Charleston not necessarily to be near Melanie and me, although I hope that's a secondary benefit. They moved here to be part of a church plant in, Mount, in the Mount Pleasant community of Park West. Their former church in Nashville has a mission to reach the unchurched. They want to reach the unchurched with the gospel, so they sent a team to Mount Pleasant. Apparently, Nashville's covered. They're all good. So this church, uh, it's a small group of people. They don't have a building. They don't have plans to build a building. They don't have fun and entertaining programs. They don't have a rockin' worship team. From the outside, they don't really look like a church, and they don't behave like a church. I'd say from the perspective of most church goers, they don't have much to offer. But their mission is not to attract those who are already going to church. They're not trying to siphon off members from the, other, from the surrounding church community. Their mission is to reach the unchurched. They want to be a church, not just start a church. One of the books they're using as a model for their mission is Everyday Church by Tim Chester and Steve Timmis. The authors suggest that today's unbelievers have no interest in church and no intention of attending a church. So we, the church, have to attend to them. For the past few decades, the church has tried to reach the unchurched by offering attractive programs, creating age and gender-specific groups, and putting on entertaining services. But the unchurched are just not interested. Their opinion of the church is either one of indifference or disappointment. Those who are not raised in the church, they don't have any context for it, other than what they get from the entertainment industry, and that doesn't paint a very pretty picture. Those who are raised in the church, they may have had a bad experience. They may have a very negative view of church and see it as judgmental or unloving. So regardless of the appeal of our facilities or our special groups or programs or our attempts to be contemporary and reach every demographic, the unchurched simply won't come. So how do we reach them? Or should we even try to reach them? Just before his ascension, Jesus met with his disciples on the mountain above Galilee. There he commanded his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I command you. We know this is the Great Commission. Jesus instructs and commands us to go and make disciples of all nations. If you're like me, you want to apply this command to foreign missions. It gives me an out. I can relax because I'm pretty sure God hasn't called me to go. He's called me to stay. So I'm off the hook. I don't have to go out and make disciples. But there's plenty of opportunity to go and make disciples right here in Charleston. So how do we as a church do that? 
Before we get to our main text, let's look at Peter's opening words to the early church. Peter begins his letter with a greeting to the elect exiles of the dispersion, or to the elect scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. In the King James Version, he describes them as elect according to the foreknowledge of God. Peter's original readers were believers. He refers to them as exiles or scattered because they were, not li- they were living in Asia Minor, not living in, a- in Israel, the land of God's people. Some of these believers were Jewish Christians, but the majority were Gentiles who had turned away from their formal pagan and idolatrous lifestyle when they accepted Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Peter reminds these Gentile believers that although they recognize their need for a Savior and they understand the truth of the gospel, the people around them don't get it. Peter says the believers live among those who are living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. And they are surprised when you do not join them. We live in a similar culture today. By God's grace, the Holy Spirit shows us our sinfulness and gives us the desire and ability to repent so that we can live as those set apart. 1 Peter 2, 4-6 through 6 says, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Peter says that Jesus Christ is a living stone rejected by men, but chosen and precious in the sight of God. Peter goes on to say that we too, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Peter uses this imagery of a building or a house. Jesus is the cornerstone, the foundation, and we are being built up on him. As we learned in Danny's Sunday school class on the church, scripture uses the images of the body, the bride, and the building to describe the church. In the Old Testament, the building was the temple, the house of God, the place where God's spirit dwelled. And the people of Israel came to the temple to meet with God. When Jesus came, he was God in the flesh. God lived among the people. He taught them in the synagogues, and large crowds of people came to hear him speak. He healed them of diseases and sickness. He cast out demons. Men and women could stand in the presence of God himself, Jesus. But today, but Jesus could not stay on earth. He knew that his time on earth was limited, and so he told his disciples he had to leave, but he would send the Holy Spirit to be with them. In John 16, verse 7, Jesus says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. In John 14, verse 16 and 17, he says, And I will ask the Father... And he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. So Jesus tells his disciples that he must leave, but he'll send the Holy Spirit to dwell with them and be in them. In 
In Acts chapter 2, we see this take place. Verse 4 says, And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit. God the Father sent the Holy Spirit to fill and indwell the believers. The people of God no longer had to go to the temple to meet with God, as in the Old Testament, and they were no longer able to be in the physical presence of Jesus. The third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, now dwells in us, and we are his spiritual house. Now let's look back at 1 Peter chapter 2. In verse 5, Peter says that we are to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. What are these spiritual sacrifices? Hebrews 13, verse 15 and 16 says, Through him then, that is through Jesus, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. So when you lift up praise to God, and when we acknowledge his name, And when we do good works and minister to others, we please God. We no longer have to take an animal to the priest to be slaughtered and sacrificed for our sins. Jesus offered himself as our perfect sacrifice. He paid the price, and we are forgiven of our sins, past, present, and future. We offer spiritual sacrifices to God not to earn salvation, but because we are forgiven. We offer spiritual sacrifices in order to please our great God and King. Peter continues in chapter 2, verse 9 and 10, to describe the believers as a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. In these verses, Peter makes several references back to Old Testament passages. Passages from Exodus, Isaiah, and Hosea. In Isaiah 43, verse 20 and 21, it says, For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I form for myself, that they might declare my praise. And in Exodus 19, 5 and 6, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, You shall be my treasured people among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The verses from Hosea sound a little odd. I will say to not my people, and I will have mercy on no mercy. You see, Hosea was a prophet to the nation of Israel just before they were defeated by the Assyrians and taken into captivity. Israel had been unfaithful to God, and God chose to use the life of Hosea as a picture of that unfaithfulness. God tells Hosea to marry a harlot and to have children with her. So Hosea marries Gomer, the daughter of Diblium. Their first child was a son, and God said to name him Jezreel, which means God scatters, because God was going to scatter the people of Israel because of their sins. Then they have a daughter, and God says to name her Lo-Ruhamah, which means no pity or no mercy, because God was at the end of his patience with the nation of Israel, and he was going to allow them to be taken into captivity by the Assyrians. The third child was a son whom God also gave a name, and his name was Lo-Ami, or not my people. 
God would completely withdraw his favor from the nation of Israel. But we see in chapter 2, Hosea begins to prophesy about the restoration of the nation. And so he says, at that time, at the time of the restoration, God will have compassion on no mercy, and he will say to not my people that you are my people. So God is constantly redeeming and restoring his sinful people. From the time of Abraham, God set apart a people to be his chosen nation. We see in Genesis 12, And I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. God not only promises Abraham that he would be the father of a great nation, but God says to him, in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So from Genesis, God has had a plan to use his people to bless the world. Looking again at 1 Peter uh, 2, verse 9, we the church are to proclaim the excellencies of him who called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. There's no greater way for God's people to bless the world than to proclaim this message of hope. We are called to tell everyone about our great God and King who transformed us and called us out of darkness and into his marvelous light. This is the good news of the gospel, and we must share it with the lost and dying world. Not to our fellow believers, but to those who are in darkness, those who have left the church, and those who see the church as irrelevant. There was a time in America when attending church and being a member of a church was considered normal. Our country was considered a Judeo-Christian nation. Attending church on Sunday was part of the rhythm and routine for many Americans. That doesn't mean that there were any more Christians because attending church didn't make these people Christians. <coughs> Excuse me. But there were a higher percentage of people attending church at that time. Those unbelievers who attended church regularly were at the very least familiar with the teachings of the church. They sang hymns, they prayed, they heard the word of God read, and they heard the gospel preached. They had a head knowledge, even if they didn't trust Jesus as their personal savior. They were also in community with, the, with true Christians, which meant that in times of hardship, crisis, sickness, sorrow, these unbelievers were surrounded by Christians. They experienced the love of Christ being poured out by their church family. The church was relevant and integral into their lives. And most importantly, they were being reached with the gospel. Over the years, going to church has become less and less expected. So many in our community, including our neighbors, coworkers, classmates, and friends, they simply stay home. They don't see church as relevant and important. Let me give you an example. A couple of months ago, I was meeting with some business owners that I know, and we were talking and sharing uh, the core principles that guide and direct us in our businesses. The first two or three people who presented were Christians, and each of us said something to the effect of, I'm a Christian, and I strive to conduct my business in a way that brings glory and honor to God. The next uh, person, Mike, he said, well, I'm not a Christian, but I believe in doing what's right. I follow Christian principles in my business. He went on to explain that when his daughter was a child, he and his family went to church every Sunday. 
He was even on several church boards. It was important for him and his wife to raise their daughter in the church. But now, church is just not important. And so Mike isn't likely to come to church. Through our business group, Mike and I have become friends, and we occasionally share uh, personal aspects of what's going on in our lives. And I learned recently that his wife is diagnosed with lymphoma. So I told Mike I would pray for him. And I've been faithful to do that. And I ask about his wife when I see him. He appreciates my concern, but that's about it. But you know, I've been remiss. In preparing for this message, I realized and I've been convicted that I need to not only pray for his wife's health, but I need to pray for his spiritual well-being and his wife's spiritual well-being. There's more at stake than just her health. Even the laws in our country have been altered to reflect this decline in society's view of Christian values. As an example, 40 years ago, here in Charleston, there were almost no stores open on Sunday. The state of South Carolina had laws in place that prevented or restricted retail activity on Sunday. These laws, known as blue laws, date back to 1692, and they were meant to give people a break from work on the Christian Sabbath. There were a few gas stations and convenience stores open, but even those stores could only sell essentials like gas and groceries before 1.30 on Sunday afternoon. So you couldn't go shopping. It just wasn't an option. A notable exception here were the Jewish-owned furniture and clothing stores in downtown Charleston. Those stores were closed on Saturday, but they opened Sunday afternoon after 1.30. I'd say that today, even many Christians would view those laws as a huge inconvenience and a government intrusion on our freedoms. Our society would consider following the fourth commandment, that is, to keep the Sabbath holy, a very strange and outdated idea. My point is that our society is moving away from our Judeo-Christian history. A 2007 study by the Barna Group showed that as many as 100 million Americans, almost one in three at the time of the study, were unchurched, meaning that they had not attended a worship service in the past six months. Approximately 32% of those people, or 32 million people, self-identified as Christians. But they would also not call themselves born again. You've heard the term rhino, Republican in name only. Perhaps we could call these sino, Christian in name only. The researchers concluded that these people, this 100 million people, have no intention of attending church. Also counted in this group are those Christians, true Christians, who have a history of going to church, but who do not currently make it a priority. Church is just something they plan to add back to their lives later. It's just not convenient right now. These disinterested and disassociated people are not likely to come through our doors on Sunday morning, but we can't reach them from this pulpit. If we rely only on our traditional church experience, these unchurched people are not likely to hear the gospel or experience the love of Christ as demonstrated by his people. So, we have one in three Americans who say they have no intention of ever going to church, and another sizable group who might self-identify as Christians, but who would say they aren't really interested in church at this point in their lives. So how do we reach them? If they won't come to us, we have to go to them. There's a saying in sales and marketing 
you need to fish where the fish are. But what does that look like in terms of reaching our community with the gospel? To reach our community, and I'll use that term community to include unbelieving friends, neighbors, coworkers, family members, even strangers, we first have to have a relationship with them. We have to spend time with them to get to know them. We have to show them that we care about the things that they care about. We need to extend hospitality, and we need to demonstrate compassion in, term, in times of crisis. And if God gives us opportunity to talk about difficult issues of the heart, we need to extend grace and love. We can do all that only when we realize that our community, this lost and dying world in which we live, is comprised of people just like us, people who are created in the image of God, people who need the gospel just as much as we do. Through our everyday life, being involved and engaged with our community, we can build trust and demonstrate the love of God. And as we develop relationships with our community, we need to pray that God will give us opportunity to proclaim his excellencies. In his time, God may open the door for us to have those deeper conversations. As 1 Peter 3.15 says, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. So what does this look like? How do we build relationships and engage our community? I'll give you a few suggestions or a few strategies from the book Everyday Church that I mentioned earlier. Number one, eat with non-Christians. We eat three meals a day, roughly 21 meals a week. Make an effort to share one or two meals a week with a non-Christian. You might invite someone into your home for dinner, or you might meet them for coffee or lunch. Consider eating lunch with your coworkers or your classmates rather than retreating to your desk to surf the internet. There's a natural bond that takes place when we share a meal with someone. Number two, walk rather than drive. Walk around your neighborhood and speak to the people you meet. We tend to walk with an agenda. We're exercising. We can't stop. We're too busy. From time to time, walk just as a way to meet your neighbors. Take your children or your dog along. I've heard Danny say before that he loves to take his dog to the dog park because God opens up opportunities for him to meet people and share the gospel. Those conversations, they can lead to relationships, and those relationships can lead to a discussion about the gospel. Number three, take up a hobby. Most of us have some sort of hobby or interest that we'd like to develop, whether it's gardening or dancing or working out. It doesn't matter. Melanie will tell you that I take up a new hobby about twice a year. I'm constantly doing something new. I can't stay satisfied. So develop those interests, whatever they are. Join a club or a group that's focused on your new interest and get to know others in the group. Then work to develop relationships. That shared interest might just lead to a friendship. Number four, serve your neighbors. This is a great way to develop relationships and build trust. It might start with something simple like taking in a neighbor's trash can or helping them with yard work. But through acts of service, through acts of service, we demonstrate Christ's love for others. When we serve others, we begin to see their needs and we can speak into their lives. 
couple of weeks ago, I was talking to Aaron, the pastor of this church plant in Mount Pleasant. I ran some ideas about this sermon by him, and, he, and I asked him about some suggestions, and he gave me this. He said, write down the names of three or four people that you see on a regular basis, not friends and family, just acquaintances, neighbors, someone you meet at a regular basis at a coffee shop, for instance, somebody who serves you uh, at lunch, and then pray for those people every day. Since you don't know them particularly well, those prayers may be simple at first. You can pray for their family. You can pray for their work situation. You can pray for their health. God knows the details of their situation, and he knows their needs. You might also ask God to show you some common interest or give you an opportunity to spend time with them. You'll find that as you pray for these people, your attitude toward them will change. You'll begin to experience a connection and see them as a person who has value because they're created in the image of God. They'll move from being a stranger or a casual acquaintance to being someone you care about. There are many ways in which we can get out of our little Christian bubble and engage the world. Our goal is not to win, sin, win souls for Jesus, but to show the love of Jesus to those who don't know him. God is sovereign, and his Holy Spirit will convict and save on his timetable. It's not up to us to convince someone of their need for Christ, but it is our responsibility to love our neighbors and to love our enemies, and to seek opportunity to share the gospel with them. God calls us to engage the world and to proclaim his excellencies. Phil recently led the elders through a devotion on Matthew 9, verse 37 and 38, where Jesus says to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to, to send out laborers into the harvest. We are those laborers. So go... Go out into the harvest, get to know your community, talk to your neighbors, extend hospitality to a friend, serve those in need, and proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. For this is our spiritual sacrifice. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do pray that you would show us how we can engage and be involved in the lives of those around us. Lord, open opportunities for us to build trust, to build relationships, to build friendships, and to truly care about those around us. Lord, we know that the harvest is wide. I pray that you would give us the compassion and the desire to be laborers in that harvest. Father, thank you for these things in Christ's name. Amen.